Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor. And today we're going to be looking at a topic very important for our time at the moment, because, and as well as for all times, because this has been with us since the beginning. We have been persecuted ever as Christ said we would be, and not just persecuted from those who should obviously hate us uh, because they are uh, servants of the devil, but also by those who should be for us. Now, I have the author of the book Persecuted from Within, uh, Alec Torres. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Alec Torres is a former speechwriter for President Donald Trump and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and is basically a, a, um, a big ghostwriter. He is the co-founder of Allograph, a strategic writing, communications, and design fir firm, and him and his wife and children uh, uh, hail from Texas. So, well, uh, thank you for coming on the show. I'm really interested to talk about this uh, topic with you. Um, so first, a, a, what is it like, um, writing a book with, a co-author? Cause Joshua Charles also wrote this book with you. Uh, so first, can you, uh, tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I really do appreciate, uh, uh, you having me on the show here, um, especially to talk about persecuted from within. This has been a project for, a couple of years now, really ever since uh, Josh worked with me in the White House, we, we worked together there. So, uh, you know, it's been a project almost since we left, uh, honestly, and to finally see it come to fruition to, to really look at the saints and how they, uh, how, how their times can teach us about our own is really valuable to me. And I think it'll be valuable for a lot of readers. Um, in terms of writing with a co-author, it, uh, it had uh, uh, some hiccups, but also a lot of great <clears throat> parts to it. The hiccups were often, frankly, technological. He lives in California. I live in Texas. Uh, we used to live in D.C. We're, we're talking across time zones and trying to share documents and, and our publishers on the East Coast. So there was a lot to deal with there. But more fundamentally, it was phenomenal to work with Josh because he he's a true historian and he's a theologian as well. <clears throat> um, so, so the genesis of the book re really... I just had the idea pop into my head one day. I thought to myself, how are we supposed to deal with it when leaders in our own church are, are abusive or wrong or heretical or scandalous or any number of things in a truly Christian Catholic way? I didn't know how to answer that. So I thought, well, I'll ask the people who do know how to answer that. And that's the saints. They, they, they can answer almost any question because they've lived these questions out in different ways in their own times. And then I thought, well, this is a really scary thing. How am I supposed to write miniature biographies of 8, 10, 12, however many people it ended up being by myself? I have a job. I have a family. and I have all these things to deal with. And somebody, a friend of mine said, I know exactly who you should work with. His name's Josh Charles. You already know him because you worked with him before. And I kind of kicked myself thinking, absolutely, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. So Josh jumped on the idea. He, he thought it would be he thought it was a worthwhile subject as well. I really didn't have to sell him on it at all, and we hit the ground running. And this idea didn't come while working in the White House, or was it after? It, it was afterwards. Um, I, I have to admit, working in the White House is one of those all-encompassing jobs. It's almost impossible to do or think about anything else. I, I mean, I was... Praise the Lord, there was a tabernacle within a five-minute walk of the White House because it, it was pretty much work 
and daily mass and eating and sleeping. And that was my life. Uh, <laughs> the, the kiddos didn't come until later. So, uh, okay. uh, you know, thank goodness I wasn't being an absent father at that point. Um, so afterwards, I had a lot more time to start thinking about the issues facing the church and to bounce things around in my head. Uh, but, but I don't want to seem too proud, but it was almost like an intervention of the Holy Spirit because I, I don't write on religious topics normally. I've written on history, uh, but uh, I, I'm a convert. I converted in 2014 and all of a sudden, boom, hit me. And I thought, wait a second, this, this seems like it could work. This seems actually like it would be helpful for me personally. And if it's helpful for me, then who knows? Maybe there's a lot of other people in my shoes. Was your career related to your conversion at all? I, I wouldn't say so. Uh, it, it, it was related insofar as human beings are intertwined holes, and really you can't separate anything out from the others. Um, but the career manifested itself after the conversion. Uh, the seeds of my conversion were really sown in college, and they developed uh, in my early career. And I, I converted before I became a speechwriter. Actually, now that I think about it, the day of my conversion on um, yeah, the Easter vigil in 2014 was was the first weekend after I became a speechwriter for, for Kevin McCarthy. So maybe the Lord just wanted to put a, a, a hedge of protection around me uh, before I got thrown into Washington, D.C., uh, you know, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds. So he wanted to make sure I was well protected before I got involved. Indeed, uh, um, uh, sort of Babylon to uh, to be sent to. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, we we look at uh, our experience, or sort of the you know the times when our uh, members of our you know uh, hierarchy and those that are supposed to be leading us are persecuting us or have been doing uh, evil things. And then we look back in history, as you said, you're familiar with, you wrote a lot of history prior or your experience with it. And sort of now you're doing that, but sort of in a, in a, um, with saints, as well as you start off with our Lord Jesus, as he, uh, was persecuted, um, by the Pharisees. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the difference you see in writing like sort of this kind of history versus other types of histories that you've written for? Yeah, the the I guess my experience with history before was really trying to extract stories or or uh, inspiration um, that could be infused into conversations in our times much more. Uh, much more directly and explicitly because it was done in, in a political context almost my my entire career. This one was different because Josh and I, we, we do draw analysis. Absolutely. We, 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 we try to pull out and tease out lessons and we lean on fathers of the church and St. Thomas and all and, and try to really explore what the, the lives of the saints are teaching. But within the chapters on the saints, it really is a lot of hard, in-depth history. It, it reminded me a lot, frankly, of being in college. You know, we were dealing with primary sources. Uh, we were dealing with translations. We were verifying if things were correct. I, I mean, if there's one thing you can find, it, it's that quotes from saints are like quotes from the founding fathers on, online. You actually don't know if they're correct unless you really verify it because there's a lot of false information about there. And we wanted to make sure that everything that we presented to people was a, was an accurate description of the saints and what, and their lives and what they said and what they did. 
So it, it was an intensive project. I, the, the book isn't robustly long. It's a, it's a decent sized book for sure. But each individual chapter, I mean, the, there's been tomes written about each of these saints and we condensed it. Uh, and that just took a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of reading through through these materials. Uh, but we hope in a very fruitful way because we we try not to get bogged down in secondary issues to to not that they aren't important, but that they aren't important to what what issue we're trying to explore in this book in particular. Yeah, your your uh, end notes are definitely uh, substantial. Uh, and th those are cut down. I would I would add too. We we tried <laughs> to. Uh, when when a book was referenced multiple times, we tried to say, "Just look at that book. We don't we don't need to give you every page number every time." Yeah, I mean, it and you know, so it's it's not sort of an academic book, so it's not as important to have uh, it documented that that intensively. But you you really, it's important that you start with our Lord and his um, persecution, and the fact that the the book is called persecuted from within. I don't think a lot of people think about Jesus as being persecuted from within, but more um, from without. It's, it is a misconception, but one has to remember that Jesus was the perfect Jew. He, he, he was the only one who ever fulfilled the law fully and completely. And, and in his preaching too, he said to obey uh, the, the leaders, the, the Jewish leaders. It wasn't until he he fulfilled and superseded the law that uh, and the early church kind of negotiated. You know, we read in the, about in the Acts and and in all the epistles from 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 Jude and from John and from Paul. You know that that we start to negotiate what that means to move beyond these um, cultural prescriptions of the law. Uh, but for Jesus, he really did follow his his leadership and he submitted to them. Um, so no, he, he was within the system. He didn't come in and say, I'm going to break apart Judaism. He came in to live within and fulfill, uh, Judaism, which meant within the structure that, that God created, that, that the Trinity created, uh, Judaism to be through its history. If I'm not mistaken, the Jews also had sort of the, the chair of Moses. They, they had, uh, they had the authority that basically would be passed on to uh, St. Peter himself. That's a hundred percent correct. I, I mean, it's one of those, it's one of those fascinating, I, I won't even call it echoes, just continuities that, that God, uh, that God has in his divine plan through history. Uh, it's, it's beyond the scope of the book, but so many times we see aspects of Judaism, uh, manifesting themselves within the church in a fuller and more complete way, uh, including in that power uh, of the chair of Moses with, with the chair of Peter transferring from Jerusalem over to Rome. Uh, so no, they, the, the Jewish authorities that Jesus was under, they had power. Absolutely. We can see that in how they exercised it, but they had legitimate power too, legitimated by the fact that God gave them to gave it to them which is a mystery in itself, since we all know the story, they use that power that they legitimately had illegitimately to kill Jesus. So that's, that is, I mean, there's a reason we started with Jesus. That's at the core of it. Somebody has legitimate power. They use that power improperly, illegitimately, wrongly to do evil, including the gravest evil that was ever done in the history of the world. Uh, how are we supposed to reconcile those two things? You know, Jesus was the one who 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 exemplified that. 
Indeed. Now, you there's a phrase you mentioned in the book, uh, uh, false meekness and false obedience. Uh, what do you mean by that? There is a... I think there are errors that people can have when approaching... Um, when approaching sin, scandal, heresy, wrongdoing from church leaders, uh, and, and those errors run the gamut. Um, we can see it in, uh, well, we can see it in Protestantism for one, what that says there are errors and sin in the clergy. So therefore let's throw them off and create our own church. And, and that's, never been accepted it wasn't accepted in the new in the old testament it's certainly never been the case in in the in uh the times after christ's uh death and resurrection um so that's one and and catholics implicitly understand that whether we know the reasons why or not we're like that's not okay well there's still other ways that you can operate in air um one is to simply say well they are our superiors so therefore we have to obey them um in a way, yes, that's true. Obedience is a is a Catholic moral teaching. It's at the foundation of our faith. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father, and he said that we must be perfectly obedient as well. But that word perfect really matters, because if you're going to be obedient to God, sometimes that means you can't be obedient to his ministers on earth if they are doing or preaching things contrary to what God commands us to do. Um, this is a massive subject. It's one we do cover in the book and we can discuss further. But the point is, is that we do have to distinguish just because a bishop or a priest or even the Pope says something or, or even commands something doesn't necessarily mean that we are obligated to follow it. We needed to get due deference to it. We have to weigh those circumstances very, very prudentially and rationally and in good faith. Um, but there is a high, higher law, which is God. Uh, so that's kind of the false meekness where, where you can say, well, let's just take the easy way out. One, the easy way out is let's just throw off the clergy. OK, well, that's we don't do that. The other easy way out is, well, let's just literally always follow the clergy, whatever they command. That also is is not the way that it works. Um, and uh, and and that false meekness is really what we mean by by a false obedience. Gotcha. Could you sort of explain a little bit more about sort of the the hierarchy of the of the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus? So we can sort of maybe sort of examine and compare maybe to what we would think of modern day. Yeah, it, it is. There, there are um, there are echoes uh, uh, without it being perfect per se, because it did it did operate differently. But they did have a high priest, you know, who can be equated with 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 the Pope in many regards, who sat as as the ruler over a Sanhedrin, which which can be seen as a college of cardinals of sort around him as a group of advisors uh, and and fellow leaders of of a. Uh, of a lower role, but still very high within the Jewish community, followed by those rabbis who would be around within their communities operating as, you know, the priests within our own community. And, uh, you know, it's, it is debatable and there's many aspects to it, how it's, it's not a perfect match per se, but, but that was all there. And, and any good Jew would know that you're supposed to have proper deference to your rabbis, to the Sanhedrin, and of course, to the high priest, the high priest who did, you know, uh, once a year directly 
uh, go into the Holy of Holies into the presence of God. Um, so, so Jesus was, you know, he, he, he was in, in terms of that hierarchy in many ways, rather low on it. it it's, I, I want to say that in his human terms, obviously as God, he was above all of it and he created it. But as a man, he placed himself in a position beneath that hierarchy, beneath people who were uh, demonstrably worse than him or, and demonstrably worse than even just other people. Uh, so, so there are, Jesus's lessons definitely apply today. Uh, if there were imperfect high priests then uh, and imperfect Sanhedrins then, we can have imperfect popes and imperfect cardinals now. How did he work within this system? How, how, especially, I mean, he submitted himself to to the Sanhedrin, but sort of, in what ways did they, um, like, how can you explain sort of the, uh, you know, there's the story of how they um, turned against him, or did they, you know, I, you could argue that they they never uh, accepted him to begin with. Well, it, it's it's a it's it's a more complicated story, uh, uh, you know. As as most everyone knows, there were some that m most many, if not most, were against Jesus. Uh, maybe they tried to give him a hearing, maybe not. I, I mean, Jesus speaks very directly and very harshly. It can seem to us to them, uh, it, you know, mostly in an effort to try and get through to them, who because they were so hostile. Uh, but there were some who who were on Jesus's side, oftentimes in secret. Obviously, we know of Nicodemus, um, who who was on Jesus's side. Um, but uh, I mean, it really did seem like, you know, a plain reading of the gospel would show that they were hostile to him from the very beginning because of his disruption of their norms, not not the laws, but the norms that they decided to elevate to the highest degree, the the load that they put upon other people that they refused to carry themselves as as I'm, I'm paraphrasing Jesus. So so and we can see within their minds that they were conceiving of their leadership within the Jewish community as one of of power. Um, right. Even in, even in their condemnation of Jesus, you know, it is better for one man to die as, as the high priest said prophetically than, than for many, uh, you know, well, he meant that as it's better for Jesus to die than for us to get in trouble with the Romans. They're, they're worried about this negotiation with the civil authorities. And it's, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange echo that we can have today where, um, you know, one doesn't want to be uncharitable, but it's hard not to view many, many of our senior leaders within the church, bishops and cardinals included, as being more like civil heads or, or heads of religious themed NGOs trying to make it work within the world and please civil authorities than as pastors of the church who care for the souls of their flocks. Uh, and I, you can't speak to their heart. I don't know their hearts, but oftentimes you just see it in the way that they speak and they operate. Sometimes you hear a bishop and you're like, yes, you care. You, you just from the words that come out of your mouth, I can tell you care for the souls of your people. And other times you're thinking, is this every word that comes from mouth seems like it came produced from a bureaucracy. Like, Why does it sound like this? It's a mirror of the civil authorities at the time and of, and of many times the heirs of the civil authorities of our times. And that was the case in Jesus's time, too. And he was trying to knock them out of that to be like this. Your job is to care for the Jewish, these people's souls for, uh, for, for, for them to attain union with the father. And and they couldn't 
in the end, so many of them seem to not be able to break out of that political mindset that they were in. Indeed. It does seem often like bishops these days are, are sort of negotiating with the world on how Catholic they can be or how Catholic we're allowed <laughs> to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, they have a tough job. I mean, I, I pray for my bishop, my metropolitan and the Pope every single day because it is not easy to negotiate that, especially in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to, to Christianity and Catholicism in particular. So in one sense, yes, they do. They have to deal with the world all the time and, and they have to negotiate that. Uh, but it's, it's a problem of hierarchy of, of order in many times that that one can never put good relations with the world however one much should strive for, well not with the world but with authorities within the world you know there's no point in poking people in the eye and and disrupting things without a purpose jesus disrupted things with a great purpose otherwise he would try to be you know he wanted to meet people where they are and love them so there's no problems with that uh, but sometimes it feels like that can become elevated where, where it's, are, are you trying to, to be popular in Washington, DC, or, or, or are you trying to preach the truth of the gospel? Cause I really can't tell, or sometimes I can tell, and I wish that I couldn't. Indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you for reminding me to pray for my metropolitan. I feel like that one is something many, including myself forget. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I got clued into that one at one time. I think a, a good priest just told me, you know, your metropolitan really needs it too. And and before I lived in D.C., so it was kind of one and the same. Uh, <laughs> and, and when I moved when I moved to Texas, uh, outside, I'm in the diocese of Fort Worth now. I, I was reminded that, you know, my my bishop is uh, of seen as of lesser importance than the bishop next door, who himself is under another bishop who is the metropolitan. So I was like, okay, now I really feel the hierarchy here. I got to get all the layers. Indeed, yeah. No, I I just really appreciate that. I uh, hadn't thought about that. Um, now, you you go through a bunch of different stories of saints and the way that they were persecuted internally and externally in some capacity. Now, there are a lot of ones that you go through that are very well-known, but I, I want to sort of... Uh, 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 guide people to um, less known uh, saints. So, one the first sort of un, more or less more or less unknown saint you talk about in the book is Saint Bruno. Can you sort of give us a little bit of background about Saint Bruno and what his story was like? Yeah, Br Bruno is Bruno is an incredible saint. Honestly, I have to admit I did not know about him before writing this book when we were collecting. Uh, um, ideas and generating ideas for whom to write about. Some of them stood out. You're like, oh, well, Padre Pio, of course, you know, uh, uh, or you have St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, you know, they, they obviously face big issues. But then um, St. Bruno, somebody brought him up and I'm like, I don't, I don't actually know much about him at all. I really had to look into it. And, and his, man, if you, if you think we live in some some troublesome times, you got to look at St. Bruno's time. He was in the 11th century, uh, and, and it was in a time that was called the pornocracy, uh, when, you know, it, it, the, the, the Vatican and Rome was, was effectively even run by prostitutes who were consorting with the clergy. I, I mean, it was, gosh, morally, it was just so corrupt. Um, 
and and it was also a time in which there was a, a big breakdown within uh civil and civil and ecclesial authority were fighting with each other uh, uh back and forth um there wasn't as much control over this over any situation so so things just felt chaotic um and uh just as a sign of the chaos you know at certain times troops would invade italy and would threaten the Pope by force of arms. And then the Pope's allies, the Normans, would sweep into the city and kick them out. And then the Romans would revolt against having the Normans come in and they would kill the Normans and throw them out. And all the while, the Pope's get thrown back and forth. Sometimes he'd have to flee and sometimes he'd come back in. Sometimes he'd be hiding out in Castel Sant'Angelo. Sometimes he'd be at the Vatican. I, I mean, holy moly, was it chaotic. Um, but back to St. Bruno, he, he was a figure who... In many ways, his sacrifice seems less than others. Um, he didn't lose his life. Uh, he, he wasn't excommunicated or anything like that. However, because the story of his life was one of, of such great success, the, 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 the thought of losing that success um, could almost be more terrifying, almost like for modern Western Catholics, you know, martyrdom seems so distant and maybe we could say to ourselves naively oh i would be a martyr of course but then if somebody says well would you you know lose out on the respect of your neighbors or uh sacrifice a promotion at work and it comes down to it practically we're like that one's a little hard i don't know i was really planning on getting a new car you know so so those lesser sacrifices can seem more because of the situation we're in so saint bruno he was elevated to the highest levels of the church he was an advisor to, if I'm remembering co correctly, three different popes. Uh, I, I mean, he was at the center of the action for decade after decade after decade, um, participating in the curia that would choose the next pope, advising the pope on, on, on almost every matter, traveling with the pope right there in the middle of it. The controversy that was really at the center of St. Bruno's life, uh, or at least within this book, was the division between... Uh, lay authority, civil authority, and ecclesial authority. Um, uh, I, I know I'm going on long with him, but he really is a fascinating figure. The, the, the story of it is that the, the emperor at the time said that he had the authority to appoint uh, uh, bishops within his jurisdiction and that the pope really didn't have a right to get involved. And St. Bruno... Um, confronted this problem with, with the very, uh, you know, the, theoretically obvious fact that the church is higher than the civil, that, that in the order of goods, the civil has a legitimate authority, but the church is higher than it because it has spiritual authority and God is obviously then the highest of all of that. So, it, it, you know, there can be negotiations between it. Civil authorities can have a place within the process, but they simply can't cut the church out. They can't cut the hierarchy out. That's not, they don't have that right. So he, he advised the Pope on this. There was lots of back and forth. But at one point, the Pope was um, imprisoned by the emperor and put under duress. And the, the emperor essentially said, you are going to crown me in Rome as emperor. And you are going to say that I have the right to name bishops and, or else you're staying in prison until the end of your days. And the Pope, under duress, signed an agreement to do that. So St. Bruno was in this situation where the Pope, whom he served, 
signed an agreement to do something that he thought was not just wrong, but that allowed for something heretical to happen, uh, allowed for something that was not condoned by God to happen. Not that the Pope was heretical, but that he was allowing for something heretical to happen. And he he stood up against it. He wrote a letter. He 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 made abundantly clear that he was the servant of the Pope, that he still was at the service of the Pope, uh, that he was not disobeying the Pope, but simply that that decision was wrong. And, and as a price for that, he was kicked out from the heights of power. Um, ultimately, it didn't even matter to him too much because he, wa he wanted to be a monk more than anything else. But even that was taken away from him. They said, no, you can't go back to be a monk at Monte Cassino. You have, you know, so you don't get to be a monk and you don't get to be in power. You're just kicked to the side. Uh, and he had to sacrifice that in order to stand for the truth. Um, but to his great credit, ultimately, the church came back to his side and years later said that his position was 100 percent correct. And uh, and and we are going to definitively say that, no, the the ecclesial is higher than the civil. Uh, and, and he was justified in the end, but, but it did come at quite a high career cost for him. Interesting. And, you know, given sort of our time we live in, I think it's pretty hard for us to imagine, um, even the debate between what's more, what's sovereign sort of, uh, spiritual or, um, sort of, um, temporal power because the temporal power has obviously won out. Yeah, in many ways, the temporal power is won out, but also at the same time, it's because the temporal powers ignore the ecclesial powers so much, they don't they don't put much weight upon it. Uh, there's there's almost less meddling in many ways before. Now, we can see meddling for sure. And you know, China is a great example of this. And, and, and it happens all over the world. But, you know, in, in the West, a president wouldn't think in America, a president wouldn't think to intervene in the choosing of a bishop within America not because he doesn't think he he might not think he has the power maybe he does maybe he doesn't um but probably because he just doesn't think it's that important <laughs> you know uh mm. and and i think that's the case in a lot of the western world today uh but well, the principle yeah. still stands even if even if people don't uh, even if practically people don't see the church as having greater authority than civil government Indeed, in a way, it uh, the church the church won, but also it, the uh, the sort of the argument has uh, become less important. But I mean, even if I feel like even if we um, even if a president did have something to do with, um, say, a bishop, a certain bishop becoming coming to power, I feel like it wouldn't be public, and we wouldn't know about it anyways. Yeah, that, that's that's probably the case. Um, and who knows what times will bring, you know, there's kind of a lot of chaos today and we are in a rather unique time. Um, there is one additional note here with St. Bruno that I do think is important, if only because it's popped up in the news and seems to be a recurring error. Um, you know, there was, a, I want to say it was a couple weeks ago, a, a, a Jesuit had asked Pope Francis what he thought about, um, you know, American uh, bishops and American Catholics criticizing him. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, the question wasn't undermining his authority or, or saying he's a heretic or anything, but it was just criticizing him. Uh, that whole conversation aside, it's, it is a strange open question now, as St. Bruno showed, that there is there's a lot of room, he is a saint, to criticize the Pope. Uh, uh, 
and 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 the decisions and actions that a pope makes and that can be justified if the stakes are high enough and, and if it really matters so so saint bruno obviously believed it mattered the church clarified later that it believed it mattered too but uh, it did show that that um, even the pope is not above reproach in many regards saint paul also proved that a hundred percent and he's covered in our book too it's an, another fascinating chapter in my mind Yes, it, it really. I mean, the amount of saints you go through is very impressive, and uh, their stories need to be more need to be understood by more people. So I appreciate that. Uh, I, if I haven't said it already, I have. There'll be a link in the description uh, for people to go buy this book. Hopefully, you buy it uh, from Sophia Institute uh, because we want to support our Catholic publishers and not just Amazon that uh, that would be preferable is to avoid uh, giving avoid giving your money to Amazon if you can give your money to a Catholic publisher instead. Yeah, and I'll add to it, too. I know the two day shipping can seem uh, uh, really exciting sometimes, and I hope people are just itching to read the book, but it doesn't come out till October 17th. And these the stories of these saints aren't going anywhere. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like confusing times aren't either. So if if you have to wait a little longer, uh, please do order it from Sophia Institute Press because uh, I, I agree we got to support our Catholics, uh, Catholic publishing houses here. The next uh, saint I want to talk about is Saint Mary Macalup. Is am I pronouncing that right? Macalup? I believe it's MacKillop. MacKillop. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, she's a uh, Scottish in root, and and it's um usually it's Mac is, is how it goes. MacKillop. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, call her Saint Mary as long as people know it's not it's not uh, our Holy Mother. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. So uh, Saint Mary is an Australian saint. Is she the first Australian saint, or, or she was the first canonized saint from Australia? Yep. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, uh, she. Um, uh, so, so Australia obviously is not a Catholic country. Um, it's a relatively small percentage of the population was then and is now. She was in the 19th century, and um, and she uh, uh, she just had a heart of gold. So, so she came from a poor family uh, who who Australia was almost like America in many ways for the British Empire. Like people just moved there hoping that they could get a better life out of this this new and wild land. It was so a prison she, colony originally. Yeah, yeah. And it was, I mean, well, let's just say I live in Texas now and I, and I tell people it's like t Texas is like the Australia of America. You go outside and it seems like everything's trying to kill you, whether it's the heat or the scorpions or the snakes or you name it. So Australia <laughs> is not a very forgiving place to move to. Um, but it kind of shows you their level of desper desperation. It was a very rudimentary colonial place. Her, her father... Um, uh, was in, in seminary to be a priest and dropped out. Uh, um, and uh, that, that sort of always weighed on, on St. Mary. Uh, and and he, he just had struggles with money and made bad investments and bad decisions. So they were always kind of eking out a living. Um, but she had a heart for children, absolutely loved children, and she wanted to teach children. Um, but, but there was a tiered system in Australia. So she wanted to teach the poor children who couldn't afford the school fees. Um, so, so she at first just founded schools doing this and eventually felt that she was called to actually found a new religious order. 
um, they got affectionately called the Brown Joeys because of their their brown habits that they wore. But but it was very very simple. They they wanted to have young women or not young women but women to vow poverty and and have a charism for teaching children. That was it. Well, you'd think that this would be uh, uncontroversial, right? I, I mean, what kind of what kind of bishop, what kind of community doesn't want uh, nuns sacrificing their lives at, at at pittance wages, subsistence, in order to to teach children who would otherwise have no education? It seems like a no brainer, uh, but for some reason, it doesn't matter if it's a no brainer or not. The 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 world and the devil always seem to try and get in the way and turn these things over. So St. Mary faced faced a lot of uh, controversy and problems, mostly because she wanted her order to have, to be able to run itself um, quasi-independently. Um, not, not necessarily, not, not independently of, of, you know, the jurisdiction of the Pope or of Rome or anything like that, but to, to operate without the bishops being directly involved in the day-to-day affairs. Now, this wasn't a snub against the bishops. This was simply a management um, uh, difficulty. Um, you know, if if they were in uh, Brisbane and they needed to have more nuns in Sydney, uh, she wanted to be able to send nuns over to Sydney to be able to work there without having to have approval from the bishop to transfer from one to another, to have them under different jurisdictions and, and to do that paperwork. And, you know, it, it was a good faith thing uh, that she wanted. And um, as you'll, if you read the book, you'll see that there's actually a lot of good reasons she wanted that. Practically speaking, it, it really was quite important. Um, now the bishops had, and their advisors had, had a lot of problems with the way that she wanted to run her order. Um, part of it was in terms of they thought it was an affront to their authority, uh, that she didn't want to be directly under the bishop in, in each and every one of their decisions. And part of it did have some racial ethnic connotations. Um, she was Scottish, uh, there without getting into too many details, there were accusations of some of her nuns against Irish priests, um, who were then eventually sent back from Australia back to Ireland. Most of the priests in Australia at the time were Irish, kind of like America in the 19th century too. Uh, and and the Irish um, leadership uh, felt antipathy at, at having some of their fellow priests contradicted uh, in this regard uh, uh, by her nuns. Um, Sounds so like there, there the was, Irish of the time. Yeah, there, there was just, there was a lot of strife. Um, I, we don't definitively say within the book who was right and who was wrong here, but but at a certain point you have to you do have to say, well, let's move beyond this, you know, for the greater good of the church, and and it seems like the, this ethnic factor was always a kind of pushing decisions. Um, now now Mary's case is particularly fascinating because she is a saint who was excommunicated, um, which seems like a, a contradiction. Uh, how can a saint be excommunicated? Uh, uh, we saw this as well. Another saint in our book, Saint Joan of Arc, she was excommunicated. Um, and and it, it it's worthwhile for people in our times because it demonstrates just how messy the world can be and how messy the church can be at times. And that messiness neither negates the authority of the church or or 
the uh, the jurisdiction of the church or anything like that, nor does it negate the rightness of the cause of those who are caught up in the messiness. Um, so in, in, in St. Mary's occasion, um, essentially, the, the story, it's, it's hard to describe in a shorthand because it was ultimately based upon miscommunication. Mm-hmm. A bishop within Australia had had told Mary that she was supposed to report to a, another house uh, and that, uh, you know, she would be excommunicate. Uh, there, there would be uh, 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 repercussions if she did it. And Mary uh, and the nuns, she, they, the message wasn't sent to Mary. It was sent to her fellow nuns. And the message they heard was Mary is excommunicated if she doesn't <laughs> go there. Uh, and not just that, but that Mary is already excommunicated because she did it. Mm-hmm. Well, the the game of telephone happened. Uh, things didn't happen as the bishop wanted. Mary wasn't informed of exactly what was said anyway. So the bishop came in and said, okay, well, you and your nuns are excommunicated because you didn't follow my directions. Uh, so they issued an excommunication. Um Mary went to plead her case and the bishop was having none of it whatsoever. So, so she, she was sent away, uh, uh, no more the leader of her order, no more a nun, uh, just, just a, a lay woman, uh, only to find out that all of this was based upon a miscommunication. Now, now in many ways, bad faith miscommunication, because there was already bad blood and strife going on, but still she was declared excommunicated by her bishop. Um, she bore this with, with immense peace uh and with with truly godly charity um she refused to speak against the bishop um she she refused to contradict him publicly uh in fact her mother wrote oh i'm gonna remember it incorrectly it was either a letter to the editor or an op-ed or something like that she published something in a paper to 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 condemn the bishop's actions and Mary was said to, to have said privately that that her mother vindicated her. Her mother was right, but oh, at what a cost! Because she never wanted to contradict her bishop like that in public, at least over something that impacted just her and, and her fellow sisters. Um, this wasn't a question of doctrine. It wasn't a question of morals. It, it wasn't a burden put upon the lay people. It was put upon her and those who put themselves in obedience to to the church through, through becoming religious. Um, so she bore it silently and, and with great faith. And ultimately it was found that her excommunication was invalid, uh, that the Bishop was wrong. And, and, you know, through a long series of events, she, she was brought back in to be the leader of, of her order. Yeah. The, it's so interesting. Also like a, a lot of these uh, saints, or, or uh, possible saints, because uh, Fulton Sheen, we're going to get to him soon, is a venerable at the moment. Um, a lot of them just did not want to publicly uh, sort of um, criticize their superiors un- until they had to or unless they had to. Yeah, and, and, and that, that had to is... Without realizing it, when we wrote the book, that that became the crux of it. 
and, and I, I, I won't reveal too much. You gotta, you'll, you'll have to buy the book and read the whole thing. But that, that determination of when to be silent and when to speak up, I, I for me personally, that was one of the, that was the greatest lesson I learned from the saints. So, so hopefully folks will, will be willing to, to take a look and read through the stories and see, and see how that bears out through their lives. Indeed. Also, I think St. Mary, it was, uh, uh, her family was a Jacobite family, right? Yes, exactly. So they, uh, so they had their, uh, they held to their faith through a lot of, um, political strife back in, um, the United Kingdom, back in Great Britain. Yeah, there's, my, my priest now is actually a, well, I, I guess I haven't asked him about the Jacobite, uh, roots, but he's Scottish as well. And, and, you know, finding a Scottish Catholic whose family was a Scottish Catholic through the years, that that's that's a tough one right there. Those are some faithful people. You'll have to ask your your priest at some point, because I have a feeling Jacobite. Yeah, I, I it would I would be shocked if not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean a lot a lot of them just became Protestant because of uh you know a lot of other political stuff. But yeah, so uh Saint Mary, very interesting. Um situation and also just from us being uh you know or from australia it's such an odd thing to see so it's a nice little um uh nice little story to have for australians any australians dealing with uh such problems in their own dioceses and, and ironically for saint mary too she was beloved by people of other religions oftentimes because she'd be teaching their children jews protestants <laughs> So at the same time, her bishops, the bishops that she was under within within Australia were, were condemning her and attacking her and subverting her. Uh, Protestants and Jews loved her. So it's one of those great ironies. And the simple reason for her excommunication was that she uh, didn't follow an order. It, it, it was it was ultimately rooted in a miscommunication that 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 she the the bishop gave an order that was not properly communicated to saint mary now whether or not he had the authority to give that order is another question but either way mary didn't know that she was supposed that that there was this request upon her so upon her not following the request that she didn't know about the bishop excommunicated her which means it ultimately it was invalid uh however imagine being in her shoes where uh you know you're declared excommunicated. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's invalid, if it's invalid or not. If you find out six months later, a year later, two years later, that's that's quite a that's quite a weight to bear. If you're a faithful Catholic who wants to be uh, submissive and properly obedient to the hierarchy of the church, to have the hierarchy declare you excommunicated, I, I don't wish that upon anyone, even if they are vindicated in the end. Uh, that sounds uh, that sounds like a very difficult situation to be in and yeah i wouldn't wish anybody to uh to experience that um so let's move uh finally closer to home uh venerable fulton sheen now venerable fulton sheen had a life uh, in which he experienced almost the height of popularity in the united states with his with his television show and with his you know, rise to prominence in uh, the hierarchy. But he had these uh, these battles 
with uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of New York throughout this. So can you uh, talk a little bit about his story? Yeah, it's, Fulton Sheen is, um, I, I just, I have a great love for him. I knew a little bit about his life before working on this book, but he really, I, I think what I love is that he is, um, was such an honest man. And, and he wrote an autobiography where he even, he acknowledged that his, at the end of his own life, his own faults, um, circumspectly in many regards. Yes. It wasn't like he was just laying lurid details out on the table, but, but he had the self-possession and self-knowledge to recognize that despite the fact that he was honored and praised and glorified, it, not just in America, but throughout the entire world, um, that he wasn't perfect. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it would be hard for anybody to, to be told throughout your entire life how wonderful you are and how impressive you are and how intelligent you are and how wonderful you look on TV and everything like that to, to keep humility. Uh, so, so he had a great amount of grace uh, um, demonstrable in, in his life. Um, his, um, in, in, in an odd way, was a situation like, like St. Bruno, where he was at this height of power and got pushed away from it. Um, because uh, 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 because of his react interactions with the hierarchy, um, and and his this is where I like that it, within the book we chose to go from Jesus to the you know from the from the first century to the twentieth century from uh, you know the Middle East to, to Europe to to Australia to the Americas we wanted to really get a very broad look because um, you can see just how. Uh, stupid really for lack of a better term <laughs> some of the reasons for persecution are you know with saint mary mckillop we saw that it was based on ex, uh, the miscommunication for, for venerable fulton sheen the, the 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 persecution he faced was ultimately rooted in milk money um so he he received uh, uh he he and one of his positions was to dispense some of the immense charitable contributions of America throughout the whole world for the purposes of the church, uh, uh, to, to, to uplift the poor, spread the gospel. Um, and, and in this time in the mid 20th century, that was no small amount of money. Uh, America and American Catholics were, were gaining in wealth and gaining in power at that time. And Europe was in a post-war environment. They were in shambles economically. So America just had a lot, a lot of economic clout in this time, and American Catholics especially. So this was no small role. Well, well, his Cardinal Archbishop, um, he um, gave, uh, uh, gave uh, Venerable Fulton Sheen milk, uh, dried powdered milk to distribute. Um, and, and he was given this uh, uh, free of charge from the U.S. government to distribute to the poor. Okay, sounds good enough. Government gives uh, dried milk to uh, the Archbishop Cardinal. The Cardinal gives it to Venerable Fulton Sheen. Fulton Sheen distributes it. Sounds easy. Well, the Cardinal demanded that Fulton Sheen pay him for the milk. And Fulton Sheen said, you didn't pay for the milk. Uh, this is for the poor. I'm, I'm not paying you for the milk. And, and the Cardinal, it, it's hard to, to interpret his actions and get, get putting a charitable light on this is very difficult. Yes. He essentially said, this is the first time anybody has ever dared to contradict me. 
I'm going to remember this. And even if it takes 10 years, I'm going to make sure that you pay for this over milk, you know? And uh, sorry, were you saying something? Didn't the Cardinal also help pull him off the air? Well, that's, that's where this comes into play. I, I mean, you have this long running feud that happens where, where all of all the power and authority that that Fulton Sheen had got stripped away. Um, um, now, I will say, just to be completely fair, that some of this is based off of, I'm not going to say conjecture or, or hearsay, but, but, but on, uh, on circumstantial evidence. Can, can I say definitively that the Cardinal did X, Y, and Z to destroy Bishop Fulton Sheen's life? No, I can't. However, most of those at the time who were familiar with the situation and, and the historians who wrote about this do agree that the Cardinal did intervene and follow up on his threat. Um, Fulton Sheen was pulled from his position distributing these charitable funds. Uh, that was a major position for him. He no longer had that authority. He was pulled off the air. Um, th this can be seen as well. Okay, you know, it's TV business changes, you know, who, nobody's guaranteed a spot on TV. Well, yes and no, it, his ratings were amazing. I, I mean, non-Catholics watch this show in droves. Catholics watch this show in droves. Millions of people were tuning in to watch a, a, a bishop in full re Episcopal regalia in front of a chalkboard talk about morality and theology and virtue. I, I mean, it was astounding, frankly. Uh, uh, it's not like this was a massive production value thing. He literally stood in front of a chalkboard and talked about why you need to be a good person. And, that, you know, this would lead into the Catholic faith in many ways. Uh, he was pulled from the air. And, and the coup de grace came when he was sent away from New York City. He was in New York City and he, this was the, he, he, he was known in this city. He had power in this city. He'd walk into a room and people recognized him. And he was sent to be the Bishop of Rochester in upstate New York. Now, there's nothing wrong with Rochester. Rochester is, is there's great Catholics there. I myself live in, in a small diocese now in Fort Worth, and, and we should have good bishops. I want good bishops uh, for small dioceses like that. Um, but it was a place immensely ill-suited for Fulton Sheen's talents. Um, he fit in where he was before. He knew how to work the media. He knew how to raise money. He was very, very good at this. Organizationally and bureaucratically running a, a, a diocese, um, that objectively he didn't do well. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it was, there are several stories we cover in the book, but let's just say that you have a man who would be recognized the world over whom the masses adored at one point had a mob surrounding his car, protesting him for decisions that he was making as an archbishop. I mean, as a bishop and, and the ways that he was making those decisions, he had hundreds of his own priests in, in a diocese that had something like 600 priests, if I remember correctly, signing a letter against him, essentially a, a massive sign that they had no faith in his leadership. Um, and he was sent there by his cardinal. I, so this is what's seen as his cardinal's revenge to get him out of 
uh, out of New York, out of TV, out of these positions of power, off into Rochester, which which many saw as as a backwater diocese that didn't suit his talents, where he essentially failed at 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 his job and was gone within a few years. Um, submitted his resignation and 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 it's debatable. It was after Vatican II, so technically he was nearing the age of retirement. Yes, but at the same time, it was obviously it just wasn't working well. And, and when he returned to New York, it wasn't the same. Um, he tried to get back on the air. They put him up on a TV show and it lasted 13 episodes and they canceled it. People weren't tuning in anymore. Some of the magic was lost. He, he didn't have his position anymore in raising money. It, I, it's You can't say he ended up in obscurity. I mean, he was still honored at the prayer breakfast and met presidents and stuff like that. But, but he really was never at the level that he was at before. Uh, and, and it's pretty clear that it was attributed to, to his cardinal um, executing a grudge on him. Sorry, can you repeat that part? Oh, I, I was just saying he, he, he never he never he was he never returned to the same level of prominence and of power that he had before after he was sent to Rochester and, and it's, and it's pretty darn clear that it was because of what the Cardinal uh, because of the Cardinal's intervention. Uh, now, now I should say in all of this, one thing I didn't mention like Mary, like St. Mary, uh, he, Venerable Fulton Sheen never said a word against his Cardinal. In fact, when he was sent off to Rochester, he had a press conference standing right next to the Cardinal, smiling and waving to the cameras and thanking him for the position and everything like that. And his biography, his autobiography, he doesn't write a thing against the, the Cardinal. In fact, he explicitly says that he was not going to write anything about the incident, no matter how much people wanted him to, um, because <laughs> this this it hurt him. It, it didn't. It, 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 it's not like his Cardinal was telling people, you know, uh, go and get divorced and, and receive communion or, uh, you know, uh, there's no such thing as the Trinity. There's actually only one God and it's Allah. You know, he never did anything like that. So, so yeah. Fulton Sheen said, I will submit. And he was quiet about it. Yeah. He didn't, he wasn't called the sin, um, by his Bishop. Now it, it from sort of a, it, you know, moving it close to home, I feel like, you know, I think the word exile is pretty, uh, apt for what happened to him exiled to Rochester. It, it makes me think I'm not sure if the situation is exact because we really don't know what's happening, but I think it could be said that Bishop Barron was exiled to his um, really small diocese in uh, Minnesota from uh, LA. The moment it happened, we, we were finishing up the book or, or we were in the editing process of the book when that happened. And that was my immediate thought. I don't know the details. Maybe we'll know more as time goes on. But I thought, okay, major diocese under an archbishop, massive media prominence. For Fulton Sheen, it was on TV. For Bishop Barron, it was online, the new media forum. And he's booted out to a small diocese that most Americans hadn't heard of or couldn't locate on a map. Well, you know, the echoes seem to be there. Yeah, the difference is, though, that Bishop Barron, his... Um his internet presence was is not controlled by uh by the art by the cardinal so i think that um or at least it would have been harder to remove him probably from the yeah and, and and you know you've seen that there are examples of bishops and cardinals essentially telling uh, uh those beneath them that they can't even speak publicly 
uh, and there there are circumstances in which that's within their jurisdiction and authority, and circumstances where it's not. But it does seem like that that is a that is a very big um, uh, difference. Uh, when when Fulton Sheen left New York, he left the New York studio. He couldn't get another studio. It wasn't <laughs> as easy to pull out a, to pull out a TV show, you know, from New York live if you're uh, if you're in Rochester. Exactly. Yeah. No, that uh, very interesting um stuff uh, all these um saints and uh well we got a venerable here as well uh have very interesting stories and i think this is a very important book and i really uh i appreciate you and joshua charles writing this book because i think people need to know more about all of these different characters and this guidance i think is is very important for our time so um, thank you for that. And um, sort of, is there anything uh, upcoming uh, other than the book that uh, you'd like to share? Uh, well, no, this, this is kind of one of those uh, uh, strange things where uh, I, I guess you can tell that there were good motives uh, uh, behind the book. At least I really hope that there were and there's nothing tarnishing it. Um, I was very happily a ghost writer uh, 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 before I'm going to very happily be a ghostwriter afterwards. Um, you know, I, I've learned to never, I, 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 I told my wife I'd never write a book and then here I am, uh, with a book. So I'm not going to say never, uh, but, um, I, I don't, uh, I don't have a, a, a need for, for a show. I'm not going to become a commentator or anything like that. Uh, the, the reason I'm here with you and I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that you had me on is just because we did write this book. And, and if it was my words there, I'd be less excited about trying to tell people that you have to read it, you know, but, but all, all I did was look at the saints and, and study their lives. And I, I was blessed to be able to have the time and, and, and the ability to put that together and, and to write that in such a way that, that people can hopefully understand it and draw lessons for themselves. So, um, I, I, I don't have anything else coming up because hopefully people will want to want to look at this just because they want to know what the saints have to say to them. Uh, I, I know they sure as heck helped me. Well, uh, I, really, it's a great book. Please go out and get this book. Uh, very important. If you love history, if you love Catholicism, uh, even if you just love sort of uh, sort of the political dynamics of the situation, there's sort of plenty of that going on even if it's more in the background, most likely, because, you know, the focus really is uh, on the saint's life, not necessarily political dynamics, but there, but there's definitely, you know, elements of that in the book. Um, so Alec, thank you for coming on the show. It's, it's been um, a pleasure having you and talking with you and, you know, uh, I wish you great luck and uh, Godspeed uh, with Thank you so much. whatever you have left or whatever you're going to be doing in the future. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We'll see what the Lord has in store for me, but I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you all for watching. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe, and God bless.